Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Do you want to know how to plane the end grain of a thick board at an angle? Are you curious about how to use through rabbits in a frame without the rabbits showing through the end grain? You need to know how to fix an overcut tenon. I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 8 of the show for August 2nd, 2017. Been a busy couple of weeks since the last show. I spent quite a bit of time preparing for the sliding lid candle box class that I taught at the Chestnut Creek School of the Arts a little over a week ago. That was a one-day class that I taught two Saturdays ago, and I think it went pretty well. If I do the same class again, you know, I'll, I'll certainly make some changes to it, but overall, I think it was a, a success, and the feedback that I received was all positive and, and helpful for improving things the next time we do the class. So, and speaking of classes, today's main topic is going to be all about teaching woodworking classes. And I realize that some of you may feel like this isn't a topic that is necessarily relevant to your current place along the hand tool journey. Maybe you're just starting out or at a point in your woodworking where you may be the one taking the woodworking classes. So you might feel like teaching classes is a topic that is above your skill level. But I hope you'll stick around for the discussion anyway because I think that some of what I'm going to talk about might be information you can use as a participant in a class as well as as an instructor. So I've finally been able to get some time back out in the shop. Haven't done a whole lot other than some general cleanup and sharpen some tools and move some lumber around and just generally putter around, but it was time in the shop nonetheless. I have started on some new hand saws that I'm going to be putting up for sale in my online store once they're done. Uh, I have been writing about building one of them in the in the blog, so if you're interested in, in building saws, you know, certainly check that series out that I uh, just started posting on the website. Uh, my daughters have also requested some wooden Lord of the Rings hobbit swords. So I think the, the three of us are, are going to be working on building our representation of those together. And, and I'll try to get some of that up on the blog uh, as well. Once we start making those, they should be pretty fun. So I don't have any new patrons this week, but I do want to thank William Elliott, Arcadius Chikowski, Bill Warnock, Krista Kay, Lawrence Polinski, and Jeff Skiles for your continued support on Patreon. If you want to become a patron of the show, you can do so by going over to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. If you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once-a-month patron-only episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. The last patron extra show was posted on July 31st, and if you sign up to become a patron at $3 a month or more, you'll get access to that show as well as other past and future patron extra shows for as long as you remain a patron. I don't have any feedback to share with you this week, so let's get right into the mailbox. So our first question comes from Ed Savinsky. And Ed says, I've been working on the bench that I wrote to you about in the last episode. 
and in the process of preparing the boards, I wound up with some variation in thickness and length that I'd like to correct. For one of the one and three quarter inch thick bench legs, I need to figure out how to remove about a sixteenth of an inch from the end. I don't have a shooting board, but thought perhaps I could use my number four Stanley and hang the piece off the bench hook and ride the plane on the workbench. The problem is the ends of the legs have a 10 degree bevel, which complicates things a bit. Also, the plan calls for cutting an arc on the end of the legs at a 10 degree bevel using a bandsaw with a tilting table. I don't have one of those either, so I'm not sure what to do in this situation. So, Ed, um, the first thing I would say is you should certainly build yourself a shooting board because they are extremely um, useful in the hand tool shop. Um, but in the case that we're talking about here, where you're looking at a, a one and three quarter inch thick piece of stock that's cut at a 10 degree bevel, I don't think a shooting board would be very helpful even if you had one. Um, to that point, a bench hook certainly can be used as a shooting board. Um, if you're going to do that, your bench should be flat or, or fairly flat so that you can be assured that if you're riding the plane on the bench top, that you're, you're square to the surface of the bench hook. But more importantly, um, you know, you, you want to make sure that this, the fence of the bench hook then is perfectly square to the edge of the bench hook. Um, a lot of times when we make bench hooks, they're kind of knocked together, quick and dirty things. Uh, and since we're not using them for shooting, we don't usually worry about having the fence perfectly square to the edge of the bench hook. So um, if you're going to use it as a shooting board, you should certainly make sure that the fence is perfectly square to the edge. But in your case, you've got a piece with a, a 10 degree bevel. And in addition to that, the piece is almost two inches thick. So um, my solution to this problem is not to use a bench hook at all. This, this piece is way too big. Um, shooting boards are really designed for planing the end grain of small pieces that can't be easily held in a vise. Um, the side of the bench that you're working on at an inch and three quarters thick, and I, I did see the pictures that you sent, you know, it's a, it's a pretty wide bench leg as well. That they're pretty substantial pieces. So what I would do first is to scribe a line with a knife all the way on all four sides of the piece following that bevel. If there's enough meat on the waist side of that scribe line, you can just saw more away. Sixteenth um, of an inch is starting to approach, you know, not quite enough meat. But, you know, if you've got a fat sixteenth to an eighth, you should be able to saw that away or or close to it and then just clean it up with a hand plane. But if you're not comfortable sawing off such a, a thin sliver, um, I would just clamp it in your bench vise and plane down to that scribe line with, you know, your, your number four or a block plane or whatever it is you've got. Um, you know, with a piece that big, you shouldn't have any problems balancing the plane on the end grain. Um, and if you can scribe an accurate line on all four sides around following that 10 degree bevel. If you just plane down to your line, um, you know, that's going to be as accurate as you need it. 
And keep in mind that it's likely that once you finish building this, you may need to adjust the length of those bench legs anyway to keep the bench from rocking. So you may have to do some additional work a little bit later. So if they're not perfect right now, you're going to get an opportunity to you know, do some minor trimming on the legs of that bench later to level everything out after it's all assembled. So yeah, I would just use the... Um, you know, use the bench vise, put it in the bench vise and, and plane it that way. Um, in terms of cutting the arc, you know, it's it's really a similar solution. Um, the beauty of hand tools is we don't need tilting tables and all these these ways to hold pieces at a, a strange angle to the blade. I would just really, what I would do would be to make a pattern of the curve. Take a piece of cardboard, maybe from a, an old cereal box, you know, something that has some structure to it. Uh, and make the pattern of that curve. Then I want you to draw the curve, use that pattern to draw the curve on the one side of the piece, and then transfer the endpoints of that curve to the opposite side of the piece using your sliding bevel. So you're going to be able to transfer the curve at the 10 degree bevel that you need to be at. Then line up the pattern with the 10 degree bevel lines that you just drew and draw the pattern on the other side again. Um, and then it's the same thing. If you can use a, a coping saw or a turning saw or whatever you do have, saw close to that line and then clean it up with spoke shave, rasp, you know, files, card scrapers, whatever you've got, clean it up down to that line and you're going to have a curve that follows that bevel angle. So yeah, you know, it's the uh, the old adage with hand tools, you know, if you can uh, if you can see the line you can saw the line and and you know if you can work to the line as long as your layout is good you're good to go you don't have to worry about lots of uh jigs and and uh, appliances to to hold your tools or hold your stock at strange angles you can just draw the the layout lines and then work to the lines so our second question comes from Chris um, and Chris's question is sort of a, a combination of some feedback and a question. So um, he says, thank you so much for your last episode, uh, which was episode seven. I've been considering picking up a set of carving tools. And after listening to your podcast where you discussed carving tools and hearing your recommendations to avoid sets of carving tools, I'm rethinking things. I was considering the RU seven piece set, but based on your suggestion, I'm now not sure what tools I should get. I want to try some simple furniture carving, not necessarily period style carvings, just some simple embellishments and maybe some letter carving. Do you have any thoughts? So Chris, I should, um, I should take back my statement slightly. Um, yes, in most cases I, I would suggest you avoid sets because most of the time sets are going to give you tools that you really don't need. The one exception that I have seen to this is that RU set. Um, and I actually have some of those tools and there there are fantastic carving tools. Um, the seven piece set, in my opinion, actually is a, is a pretty good set for someone who's gonna do some furniture carving because it it comes with good sweeps for furniture carving, good sizes for furniture carving, and it comes with that V tool, the parting tool. So the parting tool or V-tool is almost always going to be one of the first tools that you get because you do a lot of the work that you do in furniture carving is going to use that. 
the other six gouges that 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 seven piece set comes with i think were a number three a number six and number nine in i want to say something like a quarter or three eighths of an inch somewhere around those sizes um, and then those same three sweeps in somewhere about half inch um, and those six gouges those six sweeps are really um, and sizes are really great ones to start with because what you end up with is a flat a cup but flat uh, flat profile in a couple of different sizes so you've got that number three in about a quarter and about a half inch so that's that's good for modeling and, and flattening out some background the number six is sort of a medium sweep um, and again you get that in a quarter and a half and that's you know a good general um, size for for doing a lot of different shapes and carving and then that number nine which is a, a deep um, deep fluted gouge again in that quarter and half inch um, and I, I think those six gouges are gouges you're going to use a lot um, I use those six sizes constantly when I'm carving um, different furniture elements so I do think those six sizes are a good size um, and again that that seventh piece the seventh tool which is that uh, the V chisel or the parting tool um, again is going to be one that you're going to use all the time so that set may actually be an exception to the rule um, so it may not be such a bad uh, a bad buy in terms of the letter carving um, a lot of letter carving can be done with just regular old bench chisels um, you know most of the straight parts of letter carving just use you know you're, you're using straight chisels if uh, if you look at letter carving chisel sets essentially what you're getting is a range of straight chisel sizes now they they're usually double beveled chisels because they're carving chisels but you can still use a straight um, bench chisel to do the same work um, you would just use it bevel down or you don't even have to use it bevel down you can still use it bevel up as well you know I've done some basic letter carving I don't do a lot of letter carving but um, the letter carving that I have done I've essentially done it all with um, straight bench chisels and then um, for for any curved letters and, and serifs on straight letters you know you can do those with the the carving tools that are in that seven piece RU set so I think if you use that uh, if you were to get that seven piece RU set that should do you good to get started with your furniture carving and probably will do um, do a good job for quite a while before you need to add more tools to that set so um, that may not be a bad buy and that will get you into basic furniture carving as well as some letter carving as well along with your bench chisels so our next question comes from Jason and Jason says I have come across a stopped rabbit or a need for a stopped rabbit in my current project one side of the project has a framed mirror originally I was going to house the mirror in a, a mortise and tendon frame with a groove plowed in it and then I decided to use two rabbits instead placing the mirror between the frame and a backer board in case the mirror was ever broken it could easily be replaced with the the rabbit construction versus housed in a groove not to mention with the groove construction the back of the mirror would show and look unpleasing from the back side anyway I plowed through rabbits on the rails but for the styles I cannot create through rabbits as they would obviously show on the ends of the rails how did they handle mirrors in period furniture did they not care about breakage and replacement 
am I just signed up for some chisel work making stopped rabbits? So Jason, um, I would say no, you are not signed up for making stopped rabbits if you do, don't choose to go that way. Um, you can make through rabbits. There's no need for a stopped rabbit at all. Um, in fact, you know, what you're describing is um, was a very common way that period mirrors and glass doors were made where um, they were there would be a rabbit in the back and then the glass would be um, glazed in or there could be a backer board is, is what you're uh, suggesting to do. So you make the rabbit, you plow the rabbit all the way through on all four sides of the frame. Then on the um, on the more the pieces that you are cutting the mortise in, um, typically that's going to be the styles. Um, but again, it depends on how you built your frame. So on the pieces that you built your that you cut your mortise in, you're actually going to remove the side of the rabbit. So in other words, you're um, you make a saw cut that is even with the bottom of the tenon stock, the, the rail stock. So where, wherever that rail intersects the style, you can put a little knife line there, saw down on the rabbit on the style side and remove the rabbit. So just pare it off with a chisel um, or you, know, you can use a shoulder plane to clean that up if you want and you just wanna get that all flush. And then essentially you're going to adjust the shoulder to shoulder length of your rails so that they fill in the gap where you removed the rabbit. And you can either um, miter that intersection if you want, or you can just leave it as a, um, a butt joint, you know, a square joint doesn't really matter. Um, it really just comes down to the aesthetic and what you want it to look like on, uh, on that show side. So, um, but yeah, if you remove the rabbit on the mortise side of the um, of the frame, and then just extend the shoulder to shoulder length of the the uh, the tenon side of the frame, it'll fill in that empty space. Um, you can miter that intersection of the rabbits there to make it look pretty, uh, and and that way you can use through rabbits on all four pieces. And uh, if you want to see how this is done in action. You can actually watch the podcast on my entertainment center doors to, to see how I did this. Um, I don't quite remember the episode number off the top of my head. So I'll, I'll go ahead and put that video in the show notes so you can check that out. Um, but I made glass panel doors on that entertainment center and they're done essentially identical to the way you want to do um, the mirror, although it's just a, a single rabbit rather than a double rabbit, but um, other than that, it's really the same thing and, and there is no stopped rabbit required. So I'll put a link to that video in the show notes and you can see how that's done. So our last question comes from Thomas and Thomas wants to know, how do you correct overcutting a mortise or a tenon? So common, common problem, you, you know, you're, you're make putting together a door frame or whatever, and you cut on the wrong side of the line or you know, whatever you, you end up cutting your tenon too thin, um, and things don't fit together. Right. So let's first talk about the mortise. In most cases, it's going to be difficult to overcut a tenon, uh, or a mortise. I'm sorry. 
Um, I can't remember a time when I've actually overcut the mortise. If as long as I have laid it out properly, um, it's not too easy to overcut a mortise because if you're chopping your mortises, your chisel should be defining the 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 thickness essentially the width of that mortise. So unless you're going in there with paring chisels afterwards and making it wider than your chisel, um, you shouldn't really be overcutting a mortise because the chisel defines that width, and you know therefore you really can't overcut it in 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 width. In terms of the length of the mortise, I suppose it's possible um, if you've got multiple layout lines on there, or and you know somehow you just manage to put the chisel in the wrong line or something it, it, I suppose it's possible to overcut the length of the mortise um, in those cases what I would do would probably be to put in a, a plug of some sort um, if it was something that was going to be visible in the finished piece for example um, and and maybe it wouldn't even matter in it in those cases but like if you were doing a through mortise where you're going to have a big gap on the other side. Um, if it was a through mortise where you were going to see it on the show side, what I would do would be to put plugs in. Um, and you can even highlight it by putting in something decorative like a contrasting wood or something like that. And you would make that the same thickness as the, the tenon, um, you know, and maybe adjust it that way. Um, if it was a blind mortise, like let, let's say a, a table leg where you don't see the mortise on the on the sh the outside of the table leg. It's not you don't usually do through mortises on a table leg. Um, if there's an, a a piece where the mortise is not, you know, if it's overcut, in other words, if the length of the mortise is too long, what you end up with is a a gap at the bottom of the table apron. So. In order to fix that, I would probably just, again, install some kind of a plug. Um, I would probably try and, well, it, if you try and install it in the same direction as the grain of the table leg, it's probably going to break uh, because it's short grain. So you're probably going to have to make the plug the same as the grain direction of the tenon. Um, and then what's going to happen is you're just going to see a little bit of end grain underneath the table apron uh, on that mortise side it it probably won't show up too bad because again it's a it's a table apron it's underneath the apron and it should be mostly hidden from view so i wouldn't worry too much about it but that's how i would fix an overcut mortise um, if your tenon is loose i would not try to do anything to the mortise so in most cases you're cutting the tenon to fit the mortise so if you slightly overcut your mortise a little bit and it's not beyond the shoulder line of the tenon, you can just make your tenons a little bit longer and then not have to worry about making any kind of plug because you're going to make the tenon to fit that mortise. The only time you should have to adjust the mortise is if the mortise is essentially wider than the, uh, the piece of stock that you're tenoning into it. To fix an overcut tenon, I would just glue on some scraps. So if you Let's say you cut the tenon thickness too much. Maybe you put your saw on the wrong side of the line. Glue on some veneer or, you know, take the cutoff even the, uh, of the cheek. Turn it backwards and, you know, you glue the flush side of that 
um, of that cutoff back onto the tenon. Uh, you're going to want to use a, a router plane or, or some type of plane, whether it's a shoulder plane or router plane or whatever, to clean up the face of that tenon first so that you get a good flat glue surface. And then clamp the cutoff back onto it, and then you can relay out that tenon and recut it once the glue is dried. Similarly, if you cut the <clears throat> the length of the tenon too short, so the short shoulder, um, you can do the same thing. You can just glue a piece of stock back onto that uh, onto that shoulder, onto that ed edge of the tenon, and then recut it once the glue dries, um, and that should solve the problem of. Um, of an overcut and, and ill-fitting tenon. Uh, it's actually pretty easy to do. Uh, and as long as, uh, as long as you save those off cuts, you've already got a piece that's, you know, for the most part, the perfect size. So, um, do the repair just by gluing that piece right back on and then recutting the tenon. So that's all for the mailbox for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, you can leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123. You can also go to brfinewoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the form or send an email to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. After the break, I'll be right back with today's main topic. Hey everyone, it's Bob. I want to talk to you about a way that you can support the show without any additional cost to you. I know a lot of you already shop online for your woodworking tools and other needs. Well, did you know that you can actually send a little love my way just by shopping online like you would normally do? The next time that you need to buy a woodworking tool, book, DVD, or just about anything else online, head on over to my website at brfinewoodworking.com first. In the footer of the website, or on the right side of the blog, you'll see several affiliate links for Highland Woodworking, Shop Woodworking, and Amazon.com. Just click on one of those links and you'll be taken from my website to the merchant that you want to shop with. Then just shop as you normally would. Highland Woodworking, Shop Woodworking, and Amazon will know that you were sent to them through my website. And in return, they'll send me a small percentage of your total purchase as a commission. It costs you nothing more than you were already planning to spend, but just by going through the links on my blog, you send a little love my way to help keep the show going. So don't forget... Go to brfinewoodworking.com and click the affiliate links in the website footer or the right side of the blog the next time you shop online. Thanks for your support, everyone. I really appreciate it. So today's main topic is the do's and don'ts of teaching woodworking classes. Now, I realize that this topic is somewhat of a niche within a niche because if you're just starting out or you're at a point in your woodworking where you may be the one taking the woodworking classes, you might feel like this is a, a topic that is a, above your skill level. But I hope you'll stick around for the discussion anyway, because I think that some of what I'm going to talk about might be information you can use as a student as well. So for me, this is somewhat of a, a timely topic, because like I said uh, in the beginning of the show, I just finished up teaching a class. And you know, I have taught classes before this one. It's not, not the first class that I've done. Um, and I learn something for from each class that I do teach. And I try to make each successive class um, a little bit better than the last one I taught. So um, I have a few lessons learned that I'll share with you today if you're just starting to get into teaching classes or maybe if you're taking classes. 
um, as well as some of the things that I've observed and some rec recommendations that I can make based upon the classes that I've taught to date. So let's talk about getting an opportunity to teach classes. You know, a, a lot of folks, you know, think they may want to try their hand at it or, or um, are interested in teaching classes and not sure how to go about getting it. So what I'll say is you're going to need to contact the school that you need, you know, where you want to teach the classes. Don't expect the, them to contact you unless your name is, is Christopher Schwarz or, or Roy Underhill. Um, it doesn't matter if you have a, a blog, a YouTube channel, if you've written magazine articles, whatever. Chances are the people that run that school um, and and, are, and the ones that are, are getting the instructors for the classes have no idea who you are and have never seen your work, have uh, never seen anything you've written, have not watched your YouTube videos. So if you're interested in teaching classes at that school, especially if it's um, something like an art school, um, like where I teach, um, you know, they do a lot more than just woodworking. It's not a woodworking school. It's an art school. And they have a woodworking studio and a woodworking program. Um, so they're not going to, most likely they're not going to have any idea who you are. So you're going to need to approach them and propose the classes that you want to teach to them. And if you do contact a, a school, make sure that you have some things that you can share with them to show them, um, show them your work. Because like I said, they're not most likely not going to be familiar with you or your work. So you need to have some pieces that you can bring into them, show them the type of work that you do, the, the level of quality of the work that you do. And if you've written magazine articles before, bring them some copies of those because those are good for, you know, um, showing them how well you articulate instructions, um, which is important for someone who's going to teach a class. You need to be able to get the message across to the students in a way that they're going to understand. Um, and bring some pieces with you to show them some of your work. If you have large pieces, maybe you might just want to bring some, some pictures or like a, a gallery book or something that you have a portfolio of your work. If you've got some small stuff, even better. If you can just bring that with you, bring the actual pieces with you, um, that you can show them and, uh, and you know, you go from there. You can consider teaching classes from your own shop. Um, I do this on occasion. Every once in a while, someone will email me, you know, to see if either they're going to be in the area or, um, you know, driving through the area or they want to come down, um, you know, and, and take a class for on, on a certain topic for a few hours. Um, and I've done that a few times. Um, you do want to consider the risks of doing classes out of your own shop, you know, especially if you are... If your shop is not um, already part of a business with business insurance, obviously there could be some risks. Um, you know, I don't want to go into the legalities and and insurance issues around it. Uh, I will just say that you need to consider the risks for yourself if you're going to teach some some classes out of your shop. Um, like I said, I, I've done it and I do it out of my own shop. Uh, I have considered some of the risks um, and I, I don't worry about it so much. But if uh, if it's something you're considering, you should consider the risks first um, before you go ahead and do that. 
um, don't offer classes in something that you are not very familiar with. So this might seem um, obvious. How are you going to, you know, you're not going to teach a class building a Chippendale high boy um, if all you've ever built is shaker furniture. Um, but you would be surprised how often you might see classes at some local places where, you know, the instructor might be teaching a class and they've never built that project before. or They've never done that particular skill before. Um, it happens. So I would say don't be one of those um, don't be one of those teachers because if if you try to teach a class in something that you're really not all that familiar with, it's going to be obvious to the students. It's going to be obvious to the in, um, the folks that run the school, and chances are you won't be invited back to teach again. So make sure if you're going to teach classes in something, it's something that you're well rounded in and and familiar with. Um, don't underestimate preparation time. You know, the we don't often see this side of teaching, whether, you know, as a, a new teacher or as a student, as a student, you definitely probably are not seeing this side of, of your classes. You sign up to take a class, you show up on a Saturday, you take the class for eight hours, and then you go home with your, you know, your skill building um, knowledge or the project that you were building or whatever. What you don't see is a, is the week or two of time that the instructor put into preparing for that class, preparing materials, preparing um, any type of handouts or documents, sharpening tools, tuning tools, whatever it is that's needed to get ready for that class. Um, and that can take several weeks to do depending on the size and complexity of the project. Um, so don't underestimate how long it takes to do that. I spent for my most recent class um, over a week preparing for that class and it was just a small candle box class um, where we were essentially focusing mostly on cutting dovetails so um, you know it can take some time to do the preparations for the class so don't underestimate that time and then get stuck not having enough time to prepare for the class and that goes for students as well if you're taking a class um, chances are you're going to bring some tools. Um, don't underestimate how much time it's going to take you to get your tools ready for that class. Make sure they're sharp, you know, before you get to the class. Sharpen them all before you leave to go to that class. Don't think, well, if they're, you know, if they're not quite sharp, I'll just take a few minutes and sharpen them while I'm uh, in the in the class. Um, first of all, you know, you don't know what type of equipment they're going to have for sharpening, um, and second. Most likely, the instructor has not left a whole bunch of time to do major work on tools. Um, it's one thing if you just need to touch up an edge, you know, because we all recommend and do that all the time. While we're working on a project, you might drop it or give it a light touch up. But um, don't expect that the instructor is going to have a lot of time to give your hand plane or your chisels uh, an overhaul because they're not tuned up quite right or they're not quite sharp enough. So make sure you take some time, um, you know, a few days before the class to make sure all your tools are prepared if you're bringing tools to the class. Don't underestimate how long it will take the class to build the project. Um, this is something that I, I'm guilty of myself. Um, I try to leave adequate time, but something always seems to come up. Um, 
you know, this, the Candlebox class is a, is a good example. What we were working on, you know, we were working in poplar, half inch thick poplar. Um, and I can build that particular candle box in poplar, um, probably in about four hours or so. So I assumed that double that amount of time was going to be enough for the class. Um, and what I probably should have allowed for was about triple that amount of time. So we probably should have started that class on Friday night and spent, you know, three hours or three and a half hours or so Friday evening and then come back and finished up on Saturday. Um, so I didn't quite leave enough time for um, some of the hurdles that we, we faced in the class. Um, so I would say figure out how long it takes you to build that project and at least triple that amount of time um, and allow at least that much time for the class. So because um, you're, you're going to run into issues, whether it's you know needing to help someone get some tools tuned up, whether it's... Um, you know, someone messing up a, a piece and having to, um, having to mill up a new piece of stock because, uh, you know, the, the piece that they messed up is beyond repair, whatever it is, you're always going to run into some kind of issues. So, um, make sure, you know, you leave enough time for those, those things. And, and, you know, if, especially if you're teaching a beginner class or an intermediate level class, it's very likely that the folks are going to not quite work as quickly as what you, as how you can work because they've never built the piece before. It's new to them um, and they're learning. Their skills aren't quite up to where you are. So, um, you know, you need to account for that. They're just not going to work as fast as you're capable of working. So allow plenty of time for the class to build the project. You know, consider how long, about how long it would take you to build it and at least triple that amount of time for how much time it's going to take for the class. Don't try to focus on too many different aspects or skills in beginner and intermediate level classes. So even in very advanced classes, what you'll find is that the instructors won't focus on the basics. They assume that you already know how to, how to do the joinery. They assume that you already know how to make moldings maybe. Um, or do the case assembly or smooth plane a case side. So when you do a lot of advanced level classes, they focus on certain details. Um, for example, you might be doing a, something with a ball and claw. So they're going to focus a lot of time on the ball and claw carving piece, but they're not going to focus so much time on how to build uh, a dovetail drawer. They may focus on how to do the molding on that dovetail drawer, or if it's um, a half overlay, a half overlay drawer, like a period drawer with a, a rabbit and a lip and a, and a molding on the drawer, they may focus on that drawer front, but they're probably not going to spend a whole lot of time on the drawer sides and back because the assumption is you've done that already if you're taking that level of class. Well, the opposite is true for a beginner level class. If you're teaching a beginner level class in joinery and in dovetails, try to focus most of the class on dovetails and not too many other things. Um, it, I kind of made this mistake in the, uh, in the candle box class. We only had the one day to do it. And the stock that I gave all the students was right out of the planer. So it was not smooth planed at all. So we started the class by smooth planing one face of one of the boards so that we could plow the groove for the sliding lid. 
Um, and then we also plowed the groove with the sliding lid with a plow plane. Um, and just the smooth planing part and plowing the groove took a lot more time than I had expected um, because a lot of the folks in the class, several of the folks in the class anyway, had not had any experience using a, a hand plane before. Um, and certainly had not had any experience using a plow plane. So those tasks, while they may have taken me five to 10 minutes to do in my own shop when I was preparing for, um, you know, at the beginning of the class, preparing my boards for demonstration purposes, may have only taken me a couple minutes, but it actually took us several hours to get for the whole class to get that part done. And it really set us back quite a bit. So, um, you know, one of the things that I took away from that was, if I teach this class again, let's have the boards prepared ahead of time and let's even have the groove plowed ahead of time and let's just focus on the dovetails. Um, and that would get us, you know, into cutting that joinery a lot faster. So, you know, try to pick one or two things that you want to focus on and just focus the effort of the class on those things and try and prepare the rest of the stock to get to those points um, ahead of time, if you can, because especially in a, in a beginner level class where you've got some folks that have, you know, little to no experience at all. Um, you're going to spend a lot of time doing certain things. You know, like I said, hand planing a board, um, takes a lot more time for someone to, to learn and understand if they've never done it before. Um, so, um, try to, you know, try to focus the class on what you really want to get out of it, what you really want to learn. In the case of my Candlebox class, um, what I should have focused on mostly was the dovetails and the raised panel beveled lid and everything else. I should have had it more or less prepared ahead of time um, so that we could just focus mostly on those two things. So don't, don't focus on too many different aspects or skills. Uh, next, don't take yourself too seriously. You know, these classes are, are supposed to be fun for the students. Um, and they're supposed to be fun for you too, really. You, you know, if it's a chore, you're not going to enjoy the class and that is going to, um, that's going to rub off on the students and the students aren't going to enjoy the class. So it's really important that everybody needs to have fun. Don't take yourself too seriously. We're, you know, we're in there to learn. Yes, but we're in there to have fun. Um, everybody likes woodworking. That's the whole reason that we're there. Um, you know, if you look at Roy Underhill, why his show and his classes and his seminars, um, are always so popular, it's because of his character and because he doesn't take himself so seriously. Um, and he has fun while he's up there doing what he did, what he does. Um, you know, now everybody, I'm not saying you need to necessarily, uh, be a character like Roy is, but, you know, keep it fun, keep it, uh, keep it lighthearted, um, and, and don't take yourself too seriously. Um, you know, you don't have to prove yourself to your students. The students are taking the class because they, they want to learn this skill. So you don't have to prove that you know how to do it and, and do fancy stuff. Um, you know, just do what you're supposed to do in the class, what you what the class is, is designed for. Um, and they're going to learn that way. So let's talk about some of the do's do make sure that enough tools will be available for everyone. So this is a problem that we had in my class and I knew it ahead of time and I, I should have made adjustments, but, um, you know, I, I had wanted to let folks try the plow plane and plow the groove in the boards, um, for the sliding lid by hand. 
So I tuned up, I sharpened my blade, and I brought my plow plane with me. The problem was we were making six candle boxes, in, including mine. We had five students plus myself and one plow plane. Um, and this really set us back quite a bit of time because a lot of, you know, the, all the, the participants in the class were essentially standing around waiting for the plow plane. You know, they may have been standing around the bench of the person that was using the plow plane to watch and to learn while we were going through the process, but everyone needed to plow a groove. And that meant everyone needed to wait for the one plow plane that we had because the school didn't have any. Um, and that that's a mistake that I made. I should have made sure that all the grooves were done ahead of time and maybe just demonstrated the use of the plow plane on my own piece so that they could see how it would be done and then move on to the next step and just say, you know, I've already done the grooves in your um, your boards because we don't have enough plow planes for everyone and, and we don't want to waste a lot of time standing around waiting for everybody to, to share mine. Um, as I mentioned, I didn't do that. I did let everybody use, you know, the plow plane um, to plow their grooves and it, it did set us back quite a bit of time. So um, I would say make sure that there's going to be enough tools available for everyone or at least, you know, there should be enough so that no more than two people would have to share a single tool. So maybe they can work together, you know, if we would have had three plow planes, I think that probably would have been good because people could have paired off um, and worked together with those three plow planes. But we only had one, so that was, uh, you know, not the not the best way to go about it. Uh, next, do insist that everyone follow the process the process that you're teaching. Um, you might run into a situation, and I ran into a situation this time where someone may have some familiarity or think they have some familiarity um, with what you're doing and they may want to tweak things a little bit. Uh, I'll give the example that I'll give you is the, the class that I just taught. Um, I did, I was teaching dovetail layout using dividers and then we were doing, uh, I, I demonstrated how to, to do pins first and we were doing three tails. So I did my board layout with the dividers and the marking gauge and laid out three tails evenly spaced with the dividers and then went ahead and saw it and showed everybody how to do that. Well, one of the students um, wanted to try something a little fancier and decided to do five not evenly spaced, not evenly sized tails. And the design was neat. You know, he did draw it out on paper first to, to kind of understand what he was looking to do and then he laid it out on the board um, the problem that he ran into was and and I had mentioned this at the beginning of the class when you lay out your dovetails make sure that you leave enough space between your tails and between your pins that you can get a chisel in there don't make the space so small that you don't have a chisel small enough to get in there um, and you know, the student did not heed that advice and, and did his layout and ended up not being able to cut those because we didn't have a chisel that was small enough to get in there. To add insult to injury, this was the first set of dovetails he had ever done. And what he was laying out was an extremely complex layout for a first set of dovetails. That's So it was really my mistake, not his. I should have insisted when he asked me, you know, about a different layout, I demonstrated the layout 
with the dividers. And then he had asked me, well, if I wanted to lay this out, how would I do that? And I went ahead and I showed him how to do that. What I should have done was said, you know, here's how we do it, but I don't want you doing that now. I want you to do do it the way that I demonstrated for this. And if you want to do a different layout on your next piece, on your own time, that's fine. Um, but I should have insisted that he follow the directions that I was I was giving and the method that I was giving so that everybody could be on the same page and I wouldn't have had to bounce back and forth and then try and go and help him correct mistakes that he made um, because he didn't think far enough ahead to the next steps. Um, and it turned out, you know, he wasn't even able to get two corners dovetailed because his layout was too complex. Um, and, you know, I then suggested some ways that he could fix that by removing, you know, some of the small inner tails that were getting in the way and just go back to a, a layout of three. Um, and he still didn't want to do that. So, you know, insist that everyone follow the, the process and the method and the layout that you're teaching. And then if they want to tweak that on their own, you know, they're certainly free to do that. Um, but at least while in the class, make sure everybody's doing the same thing. Um, next, do build a version of the project before the class. You know, you may have built a piece five years ago and now you want to teach a class on it. It's really important in my mind to b have built that piece within a, um, a reasonable time frame of the class. So if you built the piece five years ago and you want to teach a class on it now, I would suggest building that piece again before the class. Because you're, there's always going to be little nuances, little things that come up during the build of a project that are going to be teaching points within the class. And if it's been a while since you've built a piece, you may not remember all of those teaching points, all of those little nuances. But while you're building the piece, things will come up and you'll say, oh yeah, I need to do this. And I'll give you an example again. When I built my candle box right before the class, I laid out so that all my tails were on the sideboards. And what I ended up with was a um, half pin on the, on the uh, end board. And on the side of the box where the lid slides into, that meant I had to cut away part of that um, that area. There was, there was very little support because the groove was plowed there. So I beveled that area back. I didn't want to do that within the class. So by building that candle box before the class, it reminded me of that. And I switched the layout up within the class to to move the tails, at least on that corner, to the top board instead of the sideboard and put the pins on the sideboard. And that allowed for more support around that groove. And, and it made it so that we could not have to cut the bevel on the sideboards where the lid went in and not have that fear of the piece breaking off because there was a lot more wood there. If I would have not built the cherry candle box that I did before the class and just gone on, you know, boxes that I had built from years ago, I may not have remembered that little nuance and I may not have changed the layout and it may have messed us up in the class or at least made things a little bit more challenging. So build the piece before the class and take note of a lot of those little nuances and those little subtle teaching points. Um, and it may, you know, make you make design choices that are going to make things easier to teach or, or at least easier for your participants to, to build.
um, do choose your lumber based upon the project and the target class skill level. So the class that I was teaching, I knew I was going to have some folks that had never, um, really never even built anything before, not just hadn't hand cut dovetails before, but never even really built a woodworking project before. So I did not want to go in there and have first time dovetailers using something like cherry or oak or maple. Um, it's much more difficult to dovetail those woods and work with those woods. So I chose poplar based on the skill level of the folks that was going to be that were going to be there and the time that we had in order to do this project because poplar is a lot more forgiving than most other woods. It's actually, I think, um, a little more forgiving than pine even because it's got a little bit more structure and it's a little harder than pine and it doesn't have that spongy early wood, you know, rock hard late wood problem that pine has. You don't get as much crumbling in poplar. Poplar cuts real cleanly with a chisel um, and you don't have that early late wood problem like you do in softwoods. Um, and you also don't have to be as perfect with your cuts as you do with hardwoods like say cherry or maple where if you're just a hair too thick you run the risk of splitting the piece poplar will compress somewhat so you it's a little bit more forgiving in that sense um, so i chose my wood based on that you know it's a beginner level class we don't one we don't want to spend too much on materials because the materials costs do get passed on to the students two we don't want the students to work too hard um, and have too much difficulty with the material. Um, and I've written a lot about, you know, material selection for hand tool use in the past on my blog. Um, and it's just as important in terms of teaching, maybe more important in terms of teaching that, um, you know, you're using a material that is appropriate for the students. And then finally, um, have fun. And I mentioned this before, you know, with not taking yourself too seriously, do have fun. You know, you're teaching the class because you want to pass on that knowledge to a new a new generation of woodworkers. Um, at the same time, you know, you're going to learn something from your classes that you teach as well. Um, and the whole goal, the whole reason that the participants are taking these classes is because they want to enjoy the process. They want to learn something, but they want to get some enjoyment out of woodworking. So if you're not enjoying it, they're not going to enjoy it. So it's very important that you have fun. That's the whole reason that everybody is taking that class. And it should be the reason that you're teaching that class to have that um, camaraderie with other woodworkers to pass on that knowledge and to have fun doing stuff with wood. So if you're not having fun, you're doing something wrong. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, thanks for joining me and for allowing me to do this because without your support, none of this would be possible. If you do have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions, and I hope uh, you do have some to send in because I am getting a little bit short on questions now, and the show is dependent upon your questions, folks, so send those questions in. Uh, you can leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123 or email a voice memo recorded on your phone to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. And you can also use the contact form at the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt008, and there you'll find any links that I referred to in today's show and links to follow me on all my social media accounts. You can also sign up for my newsletter 
to receive subscriber-only content, updates, and special offers delivered to your email inbox every Friday. And finally, if you'd like to support the show, you have multiple options. You can become a patron over at Patreon. You can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you can shop with one of our affiliates. And you'll find links for all these options at brfinewoodworking.com support. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody.